You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Psalm 133, verse 1, says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And that's true. When when brothers, the family of God, are walking with God in joyful, humble unity, there is peace And there is love and cooperation together in the Lord. There is nothing better on planet earth. But my definition of hell on earth is living in a religious community with people who self-righteously see themselves as the good guys and everybody else as the problem children who work to maintain a religious machine to preserve their preferences and traditions. Another example of hell to me is just a completely godless culture that, that hates God, cares nothing about His truth, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes and their right is defined as what they see is good for themselves. So w- what is it that makes the difference between either a godless culture or religiously self-righteous culture and then this culture of humble joyful dependence on Christ? The answer, the only answer, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God Himself crucified and risen again, not just to forgive, but to welcome a people to Himself. A people who deserve the punishment that Jesus endured. A people who know the depths, to the depths of their soul, that their only hope is grace and that they have it. Now you, you, you boil it all down. Tell me, what do you want? What are you after? You boil it all down. I want to know the Lord Jesus. And want to walk with Him. And what would be even better than that is that if I get to know the Lord Jesus and I get to walk with Him and then I get to help other people to know the Lord Jesus and to walk with Him. There's only one way. It's the Gospel. And so today, we get to study a text that warmly passionately, and and I hope, especially by the end, clearly proclaims this gospel. And before we read this text, you, you need to know something about yourself and the condition that you are in. You, you may not realize it. There are forces inside and outside of you that are constantly trying to subtly draw you away from what the Bible calls the simplicity and purity of devotion 
to Christ. The world wants you to love it. And your ego wants you to love yourself. And so we need texts like this. I hope this text becomes one of many texts. It's just a go-to text. That whenever you are dry, whenever you feel yourself drifting, whenever your heart is getting cold, this, this text would be one that you go to over and over and over again. Remind yourself of what is true about you and true about the Lord Jesus. Hosea chapter 14. I plan for this to be the last in this series through the book of Hosea. Hosea 14, verses 1 through 9. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Nor will we again say, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His, his shoots will sprout. And his beauty will be like the olive tree. And his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. And they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we get ready to read and then try to explain this text. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to hearts. You know. I, I, I try to think of of helpful application. But your Holy Spirit is the one who can speak, not just to the ear, but to the heart. I pray that your Spirit would expose sin, dryness, even bitterness toward you. And I pray that you would pour the grace that Jesus earned for us. Lord, I pray that you would pour that. That we would know you. That we would believe the love that you have for us. And that all of our life would be lived out of that soil. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. This morning, I don't think this thing is going to work. Mark, you might just have to do this for me. Okay, here we go. I'll tell you when to go to the next couple slides. Thank you. Three things in this text. First, I want you to see an invitation to return. Secondly, a promise to restore. And then finally, an appeal to receive. Notice with me first, verses 1 through 3, an invitation to return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. There is treasure in these three verses. The first treasure is found in the very first word, return. You tell me, where's, where has Israel been? What have they been chasing? Idols? Violence? Pleasure, one more huge one, alliances with other nations, godless nations that they hope are going to help them, Assyria and Egypt. Do you remember the opening illustration of the book? Here's Hosea, who's commanded to love a woman, who's going to constantly go out on him, even for money. God, in an act of lavish grace, is inviting her to come home. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. N- notice that he's, that he's calling Israel back into relationship. He, he's not calling Israel back into a, a ceremony or into a certain way of life, or to a set of do's and don'ts. Listen, Israel, I want you to start doing right. No, he says, I want you to return, not to a way of life, but return, look what the text says, to the Lord your God. We need to hear this. Because let me just ask you, is it possible for you to be very active in church, active in service, active in prayer, active in Bible study, and for your heart to be far away from God. He's not calling you to this stuff. He's calling you to Himself. Return to the Lord your God. Listen to God from Hosea 6.6. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is an invitation to come and to stay with Him. But notice there's even more grace. Look at the reason He gives for this invitation. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God for... Here's why I'm calling you to return. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Israel is suffering and she is struggling because of her sin. You need to get that. But this is, it's just gospel all over this. 
It is so easy for us to think that it is our sin that keeps us away from God. But notice in this text, Luther was exactly right. It is our sin that opens up the door for us to come to God. He's like, I want you to come because you're stumbling in your iniquity. Your your sin, it's exactly what you said, Rob. Your sin doesn't disqualify you from grace. It is your sin that qualifies you for grace. I did not come, Jesus says, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says in Romans 4 verse 5, he says, But to those who do not work, but believe in him who justifies who? The ungodly. That's whose faith is credited as righteousness. Even though they don't deserve it, God is grieving the pain that their sin is causing in their life. And He wants His wayward wife to come home. Look at this grace. Because life on the street apart from Him is hard on her. That's grace. Oh, you know this, there's even more grace. God doesn't just call them back. Look in verses 2 through 3. He gives them the right words to say. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, this is God telling the prophet how to instruct his people how to come back to him. Take words and say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Notice that he doesn't prescribe sacrifices. He doesn't prescribe a long process of penance. He prescribes repentance and then dependence on Him. He prescribes words that cry out for grace, take away all iniquity. That's a bold prayer. Here's here's the best thing you can hear today. He really means it. Do, Do you really believe That regardless of what you've done, what you've thought, how you've messed up, that if you would call out to God, that He would remove all of your iniquity, all of it, completely is what this text is trying to get across. Do you really believe that all of your sin will be washed? This text is emphatic. He's calling out that He would wash us, that no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we would be holy and blameless. The the question in this text is not, is God willing to remove all your sin and iniquity? But rather, are you willing for God to remove all your sin and iniquity? And, He says, when you come, pray like this, receive us Graciously. Now, if you have the ESV, we can, we can talk after this because there's a question in the text. And, and so I, I think the text is clear that the sacrifice that they are bringing is to be the words that they're coming with that are coming from broken, grateful hearts. And the words are of repentance are the sacrifice as if they were bulls. But, but, but then God prescribes words of specific confession 
and repentance. Look at verse 3. Assyria will not save us. Do, do, you see, do, do you see what they're confessing to the Lord? Please remove our iniquity. But they're also offering these prayers of specific repentance. We now know that Assyria is not going to save us. These horses, this military might, this violence that we have depended on, we're not, it's not going to save us. And we are repenting. We're done with saying our God to the work of our hands. This is a confession of sin. But, but think very carefully. Look at verse 3 and think very carefully about this. How does Hosea, in verse 3, how does he, describe, how does he define Sin. What is sin according to verse 3? Relying on your own hands, either to make an idol, your own hands to fight your own battles, or relying on this godless nation in order to save you. Sin is seeking the things we need, or even the things we want, from sources other than God. Sin, what is sin? It's seeking what you need or what you want from sources other than God. And, and Israel's been seeking them all over the place. Most of these are, listen, Assyrian, other nations, their own might, other gods. Take a look back at chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, what did they do? They went and pled with the Lord that, that you would heal us. No, notice what they did. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and to King Jareb, or the great king. But he was unable to heal you. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Look at chapter 13, verse 6. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Chapter 2, verse 5, so clear. For your mother has prayed the harlot, played the harlot. She has conceived them, has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, these, these other gods, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Here's the summary. Here's the summary of Israel's sin in chapter 7, verse 14. And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Here are people who are worried about how they're going to feed their families, how they're going to clothe their families. But as they're laying there on their bed, wondering how they're going to pay their bills, they're not calling out to God. They're strategizing how they're going to assemble themselves to solve their own problems. And they're forgetting, turning away from Him. Do you see? Sin is seeking what we need, what we want in sources other than the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what we need to see. 
For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold. He is the source of all that is good. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. Yet yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. He wants them to stop seeing idols as their gods, as their protectors and their providers. No, look at verse 1. The Lord is their God. Therefore, notice in verse 3 how faith and repentance are inseparably tied together. They're confessing their sin. We used to run to Syria for help. We depended on horses. We used to cry to idols for our food and clothing. But now, look at the confession that God wants to flow from their hearts. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. There's the posture. There's the posture. There's there's what God wants to do in your heart. He wants you to become an orphan. Hopeless, helpless, rejected. But that's okay. Because in Him, the hopeless and the helpless and the rejected find mercy. Now, a lot of times, I I hold application to the end. But this seems like a good spot for us to get personal. Verse 1 Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Is the Lord speaking that to your heart? Only you know. But, but ha- are you in a situation where you've, you've found yourself drifting? Or, or you've found yourself living in, in, in joyless duty? Or you found yourself living in just blatant disobedience. Or or maybe even worse than all those things, you find yourself just indifferent to God. Verses 2 and 3 are like road maps for prayer. it's, it's, It's like the Holy Spirit giving us an open book test. Like here, God is saying, you want to come back to me? Here's the words. Here's the words. Come back to me and I'm going to give you the words to say. Confess your sin. Express your need. Reject your sin. And then profess faith in His mercy. What's what's holding you back? from praying prayers like this? Like, like is anything holding you back? Like, I don't really want to pray. God, would you please remove from me all my iniquity? Because I'm still kind of enjoying some of it. What's holding you back from returning to the Lord and saying, Lord, I have nothing in my hands. I'm bringing simply to the cross. I cling and I confess, Lord, I have looked for lots of sources I've looked for lots of ways to be satisfied. I've looked for lots of ways for my needs to be provided. 
they're not going to save me. I've been distracted from you by these other things that I thought would bring me joy. I'm going to stop saying my God to the works of my hands. And I'm going to come as an orphan because with you the orphan finds mercy. This text is for you. Like it's, it's written to Israel. It's preserved for us. God is calling out to us, return to the Lord your God. And if you do, I want you to notice that he's promising to restore. I love the transition between verses 1 and 3 and then verses 4 through 7. In verses 1 through 3, he's talking to the prophet. Here's what I want you to say, Hosea. Say this to the people. Call them to return. Give them the right words to say. But notice what he does in verse 4. He begins to tell Hosea what he's going to do when they return. He speaks to the prophet to him how he's going to respond to their repentance and their faith. Look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. More precious words have never been spoken. I will, will heal their apostasy. This is, this is fantastic news. God is not waiting for you to fix yourself. You can't fix yourself. You need Him to heal your apostasy. You need Him to heal your disobedience. I hope one thing is clear. Your relationship with God is a relationship that is based completely on grace. You bring nothing but apostasy. And you ask Him to heal even that. I know and I praise the Lord. There are people in this room. I talk to you. And I know that you hate your sin. And you're working to stop sinning. And you're fighting. And you're battling. But you need to see in this, verse 4, you need God to heal your apostasy. We need to start praying, Lord, you promised to heal my apostasy. It is crystal clear to me that I cannot fix it. Oh God, would you please heal me from my sin. Look at verse 4. I will love them freely. If the word love isn't precious enough, the word freely is over the top. The idea that this text is conveying is God has, has no obligation. There, there is no, absolutely no obligation. He's already, listen, you've strayed from me. He's already said, I'm not going to show compassion on you anymore. In fact, he starts naming Hosea's children. No compassion, because I'm done with compassion. I'm, I'm done. And yet, he's, he's inviting his people to come back. And he's like, I'm not loving you for anything in you. 
There are absolutely no strings, no coercion needed. His love is purely an act of His own gracious free will. That's what this text is saying. So many people want to celebrate human free will. This text celebrates God's free will to love you freely. Regardless of what you've done and how messed up you are. Listen, if if we don't know the love of God in our soul, you will focus either on replacing His love or trying to earn His love instead of resting and enjoying His love. You think about this. Again, we'll just stop for the application here. You think about what's the problem in your home? What's the problem in your relationships at work? What's the problem in, in relationships in the church? And the problem is a people whose ego is so insecure that we are constantly defending ourselves, protecting ourselves, or trying to be number one. This is where ego dies. You have nothing. Like, like what are you? We'll see the next text. Let me not get ahead. Here's, here's what you are. You are an orphan who's been rejected, hopeless, helpless. And not only that, on top of all of that, guilty. God Almighty has set His affection on you. There's the death to an overactive ego. And it's birth. It's birth to a heart that's able to be thankful. It's birth to a heart that's able to serve. It's it's birth to a heart that's able to be corrected without getting mad. Here's one thing I'm learning. If you want to make church people mad, then put your finger on their sin. We got it all wrong. If that's the case, then we're not we're not believing this gospel. If you get offended when somebody points out your sin, how else are you going to get to the cross? Are you convinced? Are you convinced in your soul that when the Holy Spirit inspired verse 4, this second line in verse 4, that He was speaking even of you, I will love them freely. I know you aren't worth loving. That's the good news. It doesn't depend on you. He will heal and He will love. Look at the next line. For my anger has turned away from them. This is a tiny example of Hosea's word plays. It's a play on this word return. He's saying, Israel, you can return to me because my anger has turned from you. You know what verse 4 is? Verse 4 is the gospel. Verse 4 is a promise. Let me just remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that all the promises of God, they are fulfilled, they are kept where? In Christ. Every promise, every promise that God makes, He keeps it through Christ. He keeps it 
by the merits of Christ. He keeps it through the work of Christ. Jesus is the reason all the promises of God can be kept. And this is no exception. Jesus is the reason that God can say to these guilty harlots, my anger has turned away from them. That's exactly what happened on the cross. When the Spirit of Christ inspired Hosea to write these words, he knew that one day he himself would be picking up that tab. God's anger would be turned away from his guilty, straying people because God's anger would be turned on Christ. We get offended when we're confronted with sin, which means that we need to come and sit at the foot of this cross and contemplate what happened there. You, you can see in this text, if it's not been clear through the book of Hosea, that, that, that this text, the cross exposes sin. Let me try to be as clear as possible. That we... Maybe I'll be even more clear than that. That you are so guilty that in order for you to be forgiven, it took the Son of God not just dying, but being tortured and shamed and rejected. So guilty. That in order for God to forgive you, it took Jesus bleeding in your place. And you're so loved that the Bible says he was happy to do it. John Newton, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And... Rob, I'll tell you, this has been, what I'm about to read has been set to music and it's beautiful, but um, we can look that up later. John Newton, rapist, repeatedly, and sex, I mean, a slave trader, turned repentant orphan, put it beautifully in a hymn entitled, In Evil Long I Took Delight. In Evil Long I Took Delight unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. What did he see? I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death Yet not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt that plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Thus while his death my sin displays. This is my favorite line. Let me. Thus while his death my sin displays. 
in all its darkest hue. Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. And now my life will sing the praise of pure atoning grace that looked on me and gladly took my place. And as a result, verses 5 through 7 poetically remind us that not only is God no longer angry, His grace goes well beyond just removing His anger to stirring His heart to pour out kindness. Look at, look at verse 5. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and His beauty will be like the olive tree and His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in His shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, I, I don't know about you, but, um, but this didn't immediately resonate with me. I had, to, I had to think about this for a little while. Notice what he says first. I will be like the dew to Israel. So gentle. N- not even rain. Certainly not a driving rain. But I'll be like dew to Israel. And notice what he says. He says, and he will blossom like the lily. He's promising to make his people beautiful. But that, but that beautiful lily won't be this, this fragile, beautiful thing. Notice, no, this, this beautiful people will also be strong. And, and he will blossom like the lily and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Again, I... I've never seen a cedar of Lebanon. I'm like, what in the world? I'm not really resonating with this. So I I went and looked up some pictures of the cedars of Lebanon. I just have a few for us here to to try to see what God is saying. Is it not working? Well, this is a crying shame. There we go. Here's one. You can... You can see there's a few more pictures. Scroll through a few more, Mark. That these cedars are evergreen trees. They're they're green in the summer and they're green in the winter. I I looked up the average life of of a cedar of Lebanon. 600 years. The oldest cedar of Lebanon is 3,300 years. Which means that when Hosea was writing this prophecy, a tree that is still alive today was already 526 years old. He promises his people will be green. I I love this line that I read this past week. um, So encouraging to me that his people will remain because his son will be great to the ends of the earth. It's not only about his promise that that Israel will be beautiful like the lily and strength and longevity of the cedars of Lebanon, but but look at verses 6. His shoots will sprout. So, so, So now he begins to liken it to a vine that's going to start sending out shoots where they grow. 
And not only will shoots sprout, but his beauty will be like the olive tree, the fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. We don't have time to go there, but if you go with verse 5 in your mind and you go and read the Song of Solomon, you'll see that he pulls lots of imagery from the Song of Solomon as, as God calls his straying wife back to himself and makes her beautiful and loves her. But look at verse 7. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. Not only will he prosper for a long period of time, but the people who live in his shadow, they will begin to grow grain. They will be fruitful. And I think about this. This sounds so wonderful for me that not only would First Baptist Church in our generation be vibrant and and be multiplying disciples like shoots out from us and be doing good, but but what if we prayed that he would make First Baptist Church and, and the churches of this community, the churches of the world, That he would make his church like the cedars of Lebanon that last. Wouldn't it be fantastic if the Lord would not only make us faithful, but that First Baptist Church would be faithful for our grandchildren's grandchildren. And they would still be multiplying disciples, walking humbly and joyfully with Jesus long after we're dead. Step back from the text and see what God's saying. Remind me, why is Israel so drawn to strong, godless nations like Assyria? Why is Israel so drawn to their own military strength? Why is Israel so so drawn to idols? Why are they wailing on their beds? Why are they why are they worrying? Why are they so worried of being attacked that they have to go and make alliances with other nations? Why are they so worried that God is not going to feed them, that they're going to go and they're going to, they're going to get their, their food from this other fertility God? Notice what God's doing. They want to survive. They want their kids to be fed and clothed. And God is promising to provide in beautiful, fragrant, abiding abundance, what they are trying to secure elsewhere. Verse 8 brings it all together. Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? Be done with idols. It is I who answer and look after you. He likens himself. It's the only place in the Bible where God likens himself to a tree. But he says, I'm a luxuriant cypress. All this fruit that I promise you're going to be bearing, look, it's coming from me. From me comes your fruit. God is the source. God is the provider. He's the wellspring from all the good that he's promising and that we, that we, everything that we're craving. He's the wellspring where it originates. Why would we look anywhere else? It simply cannot be overstated that this gospel is the source from which every step in the walk with Jesus flows. When people know their sin and they drink deeply of His grace, humility is natural. Peace is natural. Joy is natural. Gracious love toward each other natural. So finally, very quickly, 
we see an appeal to receive. Look at verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. And I think that he's speaking not just of this text, but the whole book together. This whole book that says, My people have been looking for their source in all these places, and I am their source. Whoever is wise, let him understand. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble. It makes people nervous to be honest about sin. It's, it's humbling to be needy. To really know our need. But there are only two paths. It's a path of humility and dependence on Jesus. Or it's a path of self-destruction. Open your heart. Admit your need. And find your all in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess with the hymn writer that we are prone to wonder. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work to call us back. Father, I pray you would call us back from the brink of straying. That you would call us out of of despair and worry, that you would call us out of of dependence and seeking our life and our pleasure in lesser things. I pray that you would call us out of just dry indifference to you. Give us grace to see that you're not only the source of every good thing, but that you are overflowing. You are the overflowing source of grace. I pray that we would walk humbly, joyfully, dependently with you. We beg you to bear fruit in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.